Amen. Well, I'm always amazed by the fact that Moses is having a dialogue, an open dialogue with God. Maybe I should be more amazed that God is having an open dialogue with Moses. What's maybe even more striking is that Moses doesn't seem to be afraid to push back on what God is telling him that he's supposed to do. Moses isn't quite convinced that God's plan is the best plan. He's already expressed his reluctance in one way. He feels inadequate and he wants out. He wants out. Now the major issues are settled already in this dialogue. Who's who is a big deal. God has already told Moses who he is. I am. I am the one God, completely self-existent. There is no other. I am the covenant God of Israel. So that's clear who God is. Israel is my people, or Israel are my people? I didn't quite figure that one out. But Israel, the nation of Israel, is God's people. And so we're clear on who they are. And he's not pleased by the way that Pharaoh is treating the people. Pharaoh, we know who he is. He is the so-called great king of Egypt, but in God's eyes, he's just a small king. He's very wicked, but he's a little king. But Moses also needs to know who he is. Moses needs to know who he is. You are the one, God is telling Moses, who is going to go into Egypt. You are the one that I have selected to do this. You're going to confront Pharaoh. You're going to lead my people. And that's the problem for Moses. Everything else sounds great. I know the Almighty God. I know he cares about his people in bondage. I know that he can undo Pharaoh in a minute. But the fact that you're going to use me, says Moses, is the real problem. It's the thing that has to do with me that's the problem. What he's really not getting is that all this is about the fact that God's people need to believe and the Egyptians need to see that God is mighty and the, that he's glorious. The, the idea is that they believe in me, says I am, not that they believe in you, Moses, but that they believe in me. So let's enter into this dialogue of the reluctant prophet. Again, his big problem is that he's not seeing that the people need to believe in God, that it's not all about him. But there's also too much I in his whole thought process. I am not enough. But the real thing is he's supposed to be trusting in the Lord, so when it boils down to it, I am not trusting in God enough is what he's really saying. I'm not trusting in you to keep your word. That's where I think we can relate. We can say that, that we are, are inadequate and in all this stuff, but we're really not trusting God to do what he said he was going to do. And so, so we can find ourselves more in Moses' position, not too ready to point our fingers at Moses. I can relate to this. I think you can probably relate to it as well. We enter into the dialogue that Moses has with God, and there are some contrasts, and God gives solutions. Moses' first issue that he brings to God in our passage is, why should anyone listen to me? Why should anyone listen to me? I have zero credibility with the people of Israel. And remember, that's his first concern, that the people of Israel aren't going to listen. I have no credibility. 
I have some good reasons. I'm sure these things were going through Moses' minds. I've been away for a long time. Not only have I been away for a long time, but I had to flee. I had to, I had to run for my life to get away from Pharaoh. I'm a lowly shepherd. I'm just a man like everyone else. How can little old me be used by you to deliver the people? And then on top of it, I'm supposed to go in and tell the people that you appeared to me. Something that happened to him purely by himself. But I'm supposed to say that, that you, almighty God, the great I am, appeared to me through a bush that was on fire, and you spoke to me. So you can imagine all those things were going through Moses' mind. He, in his mind, had some pretty good reasons why he wasn't the man to go. God answers him, here are some signs for you. And the signs, I believe, are in this order. First of all, Moses needs to see them so that he believes then the people need to see them that they believe, and through the signs that will come, a clear message is going to be sent to Pharaoh. The first sign is this. Moses, take your shepherd's staff, your old shepherd's staff that you've been using for many years to guide the sheep, and throw it down on the ground. And so he obeys, and what happens? It turns into a serpent. It turns into a snake. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big snake guy. I think I would have jumped back immediately and been horrified by what just happened. And then, to top it off, when Moses is stunned by this, God tells him to pick up the snake by the tail. Now, conventional wisdom is you do not pick up snakes by the tail, especially poisonous snakes, which we're assuming this probably is, probably a cobra. You don't pick up a snake by the tail because its head's still free to strike you. But nonetheless, Moses does what God tells him to do, and he picks up the snake by its tail. And what happens? It turns back into his shepherding staff. Well, there is great symbolism here. As you probably know, that the cobra, the serpent, was a sign for Egypt. It was, their, it was the national god, small g, of southern Egypt. You think of Pharaoh, how on his crown was a cobra. All over Egypt, signs of this serpent. And the message here, we're to assume, is that God is going to bring into subjection this Pharaoh that thinks he's a god, this nation that thinks it's so great. He's going to bring them into subjection by his mighty hand. The next sign. The next sign. As if this weren't going to be enough, this one sign... Put your hand into your cloak, and he puts his hand in, and he pulls it out, and it's leprous. God having this power over nature and over health and all these things. And, and then stick it back in and pull it out again, and when he pulls it out, it's healed. I don't know about you, but I know if I were to stick my hand in my jacket and pulled it out, it was leprous, this horrible disease that cut people off from the presence of God's people. And this, 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 this disease that eats away your flesh and is highly contagious, I would be absolutely horrified. Hopefully, I would turn immediately to God. I don't know about you, but God shows Moses that he can heal 
even the greatest of diseases. And so that's what happens. God is well aware of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and of the people's heart. So he says, if they don't believe these two signs of the serpent and of the leper's hand healed, they will have to see blood. They will have to see blood. They eventually will have to see blood. So that's Moses' first argument. I have no credibility. God says, I'll answer that with signs. Don't worry. Second one is, I am not eloquent. I am not eloquent. They won't listen to me. Uh, here's an, a direct affront to what God had already told Moses. They, they will listen to you. Moses is actually arguing with God here. They won't listen to me. I'm not eloquent. Some suggest that Moses had a speech impediment. There is actually a, a Jewish tradition, Jewish lore, that tries to explain what happened to Moses and why he wasn't eloquent. I'm not even going to give you that because it's purely made up, purely speculative. But there's no indication that there is a real speech impediment at all here. It's more Moses' concern over his inability to persuade the people. I am not eloquent. I am a man of slow speech. They won't listen to someone who isn't convincing, who isn't smooth, who isn't persuasive with fancy language who isn't powerful in speech. I'm just, I'm not eloquent. Well, God is patient. And as he does with Job, he calls Moses out and basically says, well, well, who made your mouth to begin with? And then he goes on to talk about the way that he works with people and he's sovereign over all these things, even, even these, these flaws in our humanity. But your mouth, Moses, your mouth, who gave you your mouth? Do you not think that I can use you to speak to my people, even to speak to Pharaoh? God is patient, God is merciful. He even tells Moses, I will help you. I will help you to speak. I will teach you what to say. We might think at this point that Moses is persuaded, but he's got one last argument one last ditch effort and it's straightforward it's not an excuse it's nothing else but this send anyone but me send someone else anyone but me well god becomes angry god becomes angry and as we read he still provides for moses okay i will provide aaron for you to be your spokesman. I know that he is, he is a good speaker. What Moses can't know at this point is that having Aaron as his right-hand man is going to have some serious drawbacks. But I will send Aaron, and you will be as God to him. I am God to you as speaking to you. You will speak to him. He will speak my word to the people. But Moses... You're not off the hook. You're still the man. You are the one who is going to go. Well, again, we can relate, I think, at least I can, to Moses. I can't point my finger at him. 
I don't even think that after all these things I would be necessarily convinced that I was the man to undergo this tremendous task to go into Egypt and to try to persuade God's people that God spoke to me and that Moses uh, would be ready to confront Pharaoh. I, I would be very reluctant. Can you relate to this? Uh, we'll never be in Moses' position to do anything that extraordinary. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. But are we sometimes ill at ease with God's plan? Interestingly, God doesn't necessarily tell us what to do as far as specifics, does he? gives us in scripture the way we're to live our lives. He makes his will known to us, his revealed will, but, but we don't know what God has planned for us. And it's probably a good thing. It's probably better that we don't know. Because if God told me and God told you what he was going to do with you, and it was going to be a huge challenge, we might argue with him as foolishly as Moses did. I think we can probably relate to the kind of reticence, the kind of reluctance that Moses had. He knew what was going to be required of him. We're in a position where we can trust God one day at a time and simply strive by his grace to do his will. Simply seek to obey. Seek to obey. Daily prayer is this, your will be done, not mine. But there are parallels, right? We have a little task of faithfulness in comparison with what what Moses was called to do. And we need to resist excuses. We need to be used by God, especially in the case of being a witness for God. That's the main thing that Moses was called to do. We think about ourselves. And we think, do we have any credibility? Do we have any credibility? I mean, who are we to tell people about the Lord? Who are we to be witnesses for the Lord? Is there any evidence that you've been, that I've been with God? Well, I think everyone in this room probably testifies that we've been saved. We've been brought from death to life. We've been, we've been redeemed. And if that's not evidence that you have been with God, that he's revealed something of himself To you, I don't know what is. In fact, our very new life in Christ is something of a sign of God's power. It may not be written all over us, but there's certainly evidence that we've been with God. We might say that we're not eloquent. We don't really know what to say. Very simply there is we have a Bible. We have the Bible. That's what we need to say. We may not be eloquent, but with simple faith, we can use the things that God has clearly revealed. We don't have to be eloquent. Remember the Apostle Paul? We read him and think he's tremendously eloquent. How can he write such wonderful letters? How can he he preach to scholarly Pharisees, being one himself? How can he speak to philosophers in Athens? when he himself says that he doesn't go out with eloquent eloquent speech or with fancy words. He simply tells the truth of the gospel. 
So we have no excuse there. We might want to say, use someone else. Kind of, do you ever get that you're compelled to do something ministerially, share the gospel with somebody, serve in some certain kind of way, and you feel this pull, maybe a prompting of the Holy Spirit, but you pull back. For whatever reason, for, for lack of confidence, for feeling inadequate, for feeling that you don't know what to say or how to do it, and instead you say, somebody else will do it. Somebody else. Lord, send somebody else. Little old me, you can't use me. Well, we can relate to Moses. We have to remember that um, our witness is not that people believe in us. It's that they believe in the Lord. And he will give us the ability to do what we need to do, inadequate as we really are. But there's something much more important that we need to see here. As we know that all of this scripture about this deliverer Moses, the nation in bondage needing to be delivered from their bondage, speaks of something far greater. A greater deliverance, a much more intense bondage. And the key figure in it is Christ. Understand this. Beyond dispute, Moses becomes a great man. There's no question. We should admire Moses. He was the hero of God's people. There's no question about that. We look at what God ended up using Moses for, and we say there is, there is a great man built by God, used by God, great beyond dispute. But in contrast, Jesus is perfect. Moses is great. Jesus is perfect. Hebrews chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus was the resolute son. Jesus, the ultimate redeemer. Now for a moment, with reverence and trembling, I want to go where maybe angels don't even dare to go. But when we think about the coming of Christ, which we are thinking about now and will be thinking about more and more in the coming weeks, we have to recognize that there, back before there was time, was a Trinitarian council. 
that had to do with redeeming sinners like us. And, and to understand the mind of God with a redeemer from all time, a lamb who was slain from the beginning, the fall of man, redemption and all those things in the eternal counsel of God is beyond our grasp. But what we do know is this, that in that plan, in that inner Trinitarian conversation between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, there was no disagreement between the persons and the plan of redemption included the sending of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh, humbling himself. That's what we do understand. We sang a song just moments ago, and, and I ask you if you can plunge the depths of this. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way, this part. As the light of light descendeth, from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. Light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day. Second person of the Trinity agreeing in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit to take on human flesh, to become incarnate in this state of humiliation, fully aware, fully aware that he would be rejected by his own people, that he would be despised and rejected, that he would go to the cross for sinners' sake. The word incarnate, I am in a state of humiliation second person at any rate, mind-boggling. And when he comes, he's resolute to do the will of the Father. That's what his life is about, to do the will of the Father. We might say to ourselves, I think foolishly, it must have been easy for Jesus. He was, he was fully God and he was sinless man, but we have to remember in the mystery of the incarnation, fully man, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, is subject to the trials and temptations of mankind to the utmost intensity. And he comes in order to accomplish our salvation. He comes anticipating the cross. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. One of the accounts of the transfiguration, Luke elaborates a little more on the specific conversation that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah after they've already entered into glory. Luke 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying... As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, 
who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just stop right there. Jesus is here speaking to Elijah and Moses about his departure. You might have a footnote there that says that that word is the word exodus. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about going to Jerusalem and dying. And to keep with the theme of Moses, he's basically showing them that he is the ultimate deliverer. Because when he goes to Jerusalem and when he dies, that will be the relief of his people and he makes a way for us to be brought out of our bondage to sin, our slavery. But this is an ominous thing that Jesus is anticipating. However, don't miss this. Look over at verse 51 in the very same chapter. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem to die. Unreservedly to do the will of God. We find him, though, in the height of the intensity of his thought of going to the cross, of experiencing being cut off, forsaken by the Father, praying in the garden. And it's hard for us to enter into that intensity because we don't have that kind of intimate relationship with the Father that Jesus had, that we long to have. We don't fully recognize what it means to undergo the wrath of God, but Jesus is anticipating that. And while he's sweating blood and praying, anticipating this cup of wrath, his conclusion is not a last-ditch effort to avoid it, send someone else, anybody but me. His conclusion is, your will be done. Your will be done. And we know that when Jesus goes to the cross, he does it for the joy. Isn't that astounding? He does it for the joy set before him. The joy, certainly, of returning to glory where he belongs, but the joy of the salvation of souls like ours as well. Well, the result of Christ's perfect obedience is ultimate deliverance. Ultimate deliverance. He's delivered from sin and bondage. And it's his word that is the word of life. Jesus has the authority. Moses could say to the people, God is going to set you free from this bondage of slavery. God is going to set you free. I'm simply his instrument. But Jesus can say, and he does say, I can set you free completely. John 8, 31. 
Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. That's the word of Jesus, who comes to people in bondage, to sin, to the devil, and under the reign of death, and says, believe in me, and I will set you free. That's the truth of the gospel. And praise the Lord that we live in the day of fulfillment where we know that Jesus has accomplished that for our sakes. Back to Moses. Moses needs to get ready to go and do the great things that lie ahead that God is going to do using him. He will get there and he will see and do great things. But we live in the fullness of time. Greater still, Jesus came and did great things to set us free. And there's nothing greater than what Jesus has accomplished for our sakes. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for your deliverance of our souls. Once in bondage to sin, in the grips of the evil one, under the reign of death. Surely a bondage far worse than our forefathers and mothers experienced in Egypt. Bondage with eternal implications. And yet because of your great love for us, you sent the one true deliverer, thoroughly equipped, entirely unique, the one who could deliver us and save us and has through his own death, resurrection, and ascension, setting us free and pointing us to the promised land. We praise you and we thank you tonight. We come to you in the name of that Savior and Deliverer, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.